Dear church family, life in our fallen world is a life that is full of battles. All we have to do is turn on the news and we hear of battles. Battles between countries. All of, our, all of us are thinking, of course, about Russia and Ukraine right now. Battles between corporations. Battles between political parties. Battles between different advocate groups. Battles in the Supreme Court. Battles on social media. And the list goes on. Or if we think a little bit closer to home, we can see battles sometimes in our workplaces, battles in our schools, battles even sometimes in our own homes, and battles in our hearts. But as we come to this text today of Colossians chapter 2, we're called to recognize that underneath all these other battles is the foundational battle of two wisdoms. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And so as we think about our own lives and we think about our world, And perhaps we wonder what lies between the struggle in my heart that I face or the struggle in my home or in our country. The answer to that question is there is a war of wisdoms going on, a war of truths, a war of words, arguing for supremacy in our lives, in our souls, in our minds. And this was precisely what was happening in the context of Colossae in chapter 2 of our text today. Every time the Colossian Christians left their homes or left their churches or left their schools, they would go out into a world full of worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom that would beckon to them and say, listen, you have problems, we have solutions. Come to us. Drink from our wells. Be filled with our wisdom. We can help you. We have what you need. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, as we see in our text today, was not willing to let the wisdom of the world rule in the lives of the Colossians. Paul has been particularly concerned, if you go back to chapter 1 particularly, you can read this afterwards, that the Colossians would persevere. They would persevere in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they wouldn't be pulled away from the foundation of Christ. And the first means that he gave for that was the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel. His own preaching, his own suffering for the Colossians. And then as we come to chapter 2, he he switches focus. And he says, yes, and also, you must be careful not to go after the wisdom of the world. And so we're going to consider this, this battle between wisdoms that Paul presents for us in our chapter today. And there's going to be two opposing armies that I've already mentioned that we're going to draw up. The wisdom of the world and the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And then after we've drawn up these two opposing armies, after we've described them, we're going to go to the foundation of the battle plan by which Paul wants the Colossian Christians to win the war against worldly wisdom. So two wisdoms, the, world, the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of Christ. And how do we win this war? Well, look with me first at the wisdom of the world. If you came to the Apostle Paul in his day and you said, Paul, what does the wisdom of the world look like? I want to serve Jesus Christ. I know the wisdom of the world 
can be damaging to me. What does it look like, Paul? How can I know what it looks like so I can avoid it? What is its character? Well, Paul would certainly respond to you and say, I can tell you. I can tell you what the wisdom of the world looks like. And he gives us in this passage actually six descriptions of the wisdom of the world. Six descriptions. The first description comes to us in verses 4 and verses 8. And that is this, that worldly wisdom originates in the minds of fallen men. Worldly wisdom originates in the, fa- in the minds of fallen men. Look at verse 4. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Verse 8. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men. So Paul is very concerned that the Colossians understand that the wisdom of the world doesn't come from heaven, but from earth. And he wants them to know this not because he he has some personal vendetta against the philosophers of his day, but because he sees in them a tendency to be drawn away from the wisdom of Christ to the wisdom of the world. In their problems, in their needs, he saw this drift to drinking from the wisdom of the world. And so he warns them against it. If he was here today, perhaps he would say to us, are you going to go sit at the the feet of a local self-help guru for hours? Are you going to read through many secular self-help counseling books? Are you going to spend a whole bunch of your life taking in material that is produced by man? Well, be careful. Be careful. The wisdom of the world comes from man. Stay away from it. That's the first thing. It originates in man. And then we have a second thing also. Worldly wisdom looks or sounds like enticing words. Enticing words. Look at verse 4 again. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. Now, what are these enticing words? Well, the Greek word that Paul uses that we have translated as enticing words is a word that typically referred to speeches given by gifted orators back in Paul's day. Speeches that you might hear and say, hmm, that sounds, that sounds plausible. That sounds reasonable. In fact, that's very persuasive to me. And yet, if you took the time to dig into those speeches, you would find out actually they're false. That's what Paul was referring to when he says enticing words. And as we think about our own context, I don't think we need to think too hard about examples of enticing words. Think about the example of of TED Talks. I think all of us here or many of us here know what TED Talks are. Some months ago when I was in New Jersey uh, doing an internship there, I got to spend an evening with some of the young people doing a bit of a youth group discussion. And what we did is we spent some time watching a TED Talk by a man who was not a Christian and who argued that we were nothing more than the sum of our experiences. We were nothing more than sensations hitting us month after month, year after year, and forming our minds. You aren't a a body and a soul as the scripture teaches. You are just a mass of material formed by sensations. And as we watched this, you could see he was a gifted orator, convincing. Now, of course, we sat there and, and afterwards we went through it and we critiqued it and talked about all the ways in which he was wrong. But it's very interesting. When that TED Talk was finished the young people that were in the audience of this TED Talk burst out into applause. Why? Well, because it was enticing. It sounded good. It sounded plausible. It sounded reasonable. And we can be taken in by this too sometimes, can't we? There are many things in our, in our culture that constitute these enticing words. 
Think about various podcasts or songs or movies. Things created by man. Things which may not have an open agenda, but if you think about it, they're actually enticing words. They're trying to persuade you of something. They're trying to persuade you that something is the ultimate good. Something is ultimately to be desired after. Something is ultimately true. And there's always a a bait on the end of that hook that wants to pull you in. And so we need to be aware in our day of these things also. Paul would say, take heed, pay attention to yourselves. Don't be taken in, don't be defrauded by these enticing words. Have sharp minds about you, formed by the word of God. So that's the second characteristic of worldly wisdom. Then there's a third characteristic. We see that in verse 8. He says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments, or we might translate that, the fundamental principles of the world and not after Christ. Beware lest any man spoil you, spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Now, what is Paul talking about here? Well, if we were, to, we were to summarize this verse in a concise way, we would say Paul is saying, stay away from philosophy, stay away from empty deceits that are worldly in their roots, useless in their ends, and Christless in their substance. Stay away from philosophies that are worldly in their roots, useless in their ends, and Christless in their substance. Let me give you a few suggestions of what this might look like today in our culture. Think about the philosophy, because this is what it really is, the philosophy of positive self-esteem. All of us know this. We know about this, whether we've heard it by that title or otherwise. This is the philosophy that basically says you need to make sure to regularly pat yourself on the back to make sure that you feel good about yourself. The problem in this world philosophy is not sin. It's not that we've grieved a holy God. It's that we don't think highly enough about ourselves. That's what they say is the problem. And so the solution is that we need to think more highly about ourselves and and pat ourselves upon the back and love ourselves more. The solution isn't Jesus Christ washing away our sins and making us reconciled with the Father. The solution is thinking more highly of yourself. This is a worldly philosophy. Or think about the example of moral therapeutic deism. Some of you have heard this, certainly, especially those of you who've gone through college classes. Moral therapeutic deism. This one teaches that your problem isn't sin. Your problem is a lack of happiness in your life. And while God is involved in your life, God actually mainly functions to provide you with the happiness that you want. So God stands there to provide you with your every wish. He he stands there as as a divine therapist to provide you with everything that you need to be happy in this life. And you can see this actually lived out in in various secular counseling settings. You go to an AA meeting, you'll see actually something very similar to this. God is spoken of, isn't he? But he's used for your own happiness. And so Paul would say, stay away, stay away. And you could think also of other philosophies, philosophies such as um, those, uh, those summarized in sayings such as follow your heart. Truth is relative. Love yourself. Coexist. You see those signs, don't you? Coexist. Now it's interesting and I think it's worth observing that these empty philosophies that Paul speaks of, and also the examples I've given, often have just a little bit of truth about them. 
just enough to kind of hook us in. Think about the coexist example. What's the, what's the message of that co- those coexist signs? Well, the message is that we should all, all religions, all of us, should just be living peacefully with one another. And there's something good about that, isn't there? We ought to desire peace. But what's wrong with it? Well, it's obvious. The means that they use to achieve that peace is completely false. They want peace at all costs. They want to make truth relative. They want to remove what Jesus Christ said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then also the peace that they are advocating for is a false peace. And so it's enticing, isn't it? For a lot of people, they see it and they want it. But it's false. It's an empty philosophy. It's a vain deceit. And then you could add to these philosophies examples of of philosophies, formal philosophical systems. You think of um, someone like Aristotle. I think many of us know of, of Aristotle back Prior to Christ, he developed a complex system which, although we don't talk about it much today, actually is very formative in our culture. Or someone like Karl Marx, his system of communism, this one is becoming more and more common in our country. Or we know, of course, the example of Charles Darwin and evolution, or um, Hegel, who developed a dialectic system of, that actually is very common in, in universities today. All of these are empty, vain, philosophical systems. They're Christless. They don't come from Christ. They don't end in Christ. And so Paul says, don't entertain them. Don't be enamored by them. Don't get involved in them. Stay away. They lead away from Christ. And they lead, ultimately, to death. That's the third thing. And then there's a fourth thing. Verse 16 and 17. And follow along with me, if you will. There Paul says that, There is another characteristic of worldly wisdom, and that is that it has an emphasis on shadows. An emphasis on shadows. Read it with me. Let no man therefore, Paul says, judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. What was happening here? Well, in the Colossian context, there were Jews, likely, who were in the church or who were outside of the church and speaking into the church, who were trying to persuade the Colossian Christians that those shadows, those ceremonial shadows in the Old Testament that pointed to Christ, like the sacrifices, the food laws, the purity laws, they were trying to persuade them, you need need these things as well as Christ. You need the shadows as well as the substance in order to be saved. And Paul was saying, no, that's Christ plus something. You don't need those shadows. They're getting in your way. So he's adamant, you must not be judged by people who seek to draw you back to these things. You must not be condemned by them for your avoidance of these things. Children, let me give you an example of what this was like. Think about this. Let's say that you have your birthday coming up, or perhaps it's, it's been passed, and on your birthday you received a card from your parents, and you were disappointed. You were hoping, perhaps, for something else. But you open that card, and on that card is a picture of the very thing you really, really wanted. And underneath it is a note from your parents that says, We have this item on order, this toy, this bike, whatever it might be, and it's going to be coming in a month. And so you hold on to that card, don't you? And you wait week after week after week, and you're excited, and finally the day comes, and the package arrives in the mail, whatever it may be. But then, for some strange reason, you go back to that picture You completely ignore the toy, you completely ignore the package, and you just stare at the picture, and you don't play with the toy. Well, that would make no sense, right? You would never do that. You would ignore the picture after the real thing came, wouldn't you? You would play with the toy. 
But that's precisely what the Colossians were tempted to do. Christ had come. The Savior had come. The Savior of the world had come. But now, the Jews were trying to pull them back to the pictures that pointed to Christ. And Paul is saying, no. The shadows are done with. The pointers are done. The real thing is here. Christ has come. Don't go back to those shadows. Now, we might ask a question here. We might say, why why does worldly wisdom want to point us back to the shadows instead of to Christ? Why does it want to bring us back to the shadows? What is it about worldly wisdom that desires that? Well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? If you pay attention only to the shadow of Jesus Christ, if you pay attention only to the pointers, the things that point to Christ, but not to Christ himself, then there's no power there. There was no power, ultimately, in the ceremonial system. There was no power in the purity laws and the sacrifices. They had to point to Christ because in Christ was the power. And so, as we think about our own lives here today, if Satan and worldly wisdom can can push us off course so that instead of paying attention to Christ as the substance, as the main thing, instead we start paying attention to all the peripherals around Christ and we start emphasizing those and we start making those the main thing, then worldly wisdom has succeeded. Then we are looking away from Christ. Children, think about it. If you're walking around on a sunny day and there's shadows from people and you stare at the shadows, are you going to be able to see the people if you stare at the shadows? No, you're looking at the shadows. You can't look at both of them at the same time. And so you need to look to Christ. And so we need to make sure that even in our lives here today, that while we remember that the non-essentials, many of the non-essentials are important, we must keep the main things, the main things. Keep Christ at the center of our lives. Emphasize Christ above all else. Shadows, an emphasis on shadows. That's what worldly wisdom does. And then a fifth description of worldly wisdom is false humility. False humility. Look at verse 18. Let no man, says Paul, beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility. The word voluntary there is, has this idea of the will. It's referring back to our wishes, our desires. And the sense of it in this context is really a false humility, a false humility. So he says, let no man beguile you of your reward in a false humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding the head by which he's speaking of Christ. Now, for the sake of time, I can't go into the specific details of what Paul is referring to here, but the sense of what he's saying is this. Don't let people's seeming humility pull you into thinking that you can worship Christ in any other way than is commanded by the Word of God. Now, if you go back to the Reformation period, you can actually see a number of examples of the Roman Catholic Church doing precisely what Paul said not to do. Think about the example of Mary. We know that Mary was worshipped, was adored in the Roman Catholic context, and maybe we ask why was she adored? Why was she worshipped? Well, the Catholic Church actually said that Jesus Christ is so high, he is so great, he is so mighty, and this is true, that if you're feeling particularly weak and you feel like you can't go to Jesus Christ, well, then go to Mary. Go to Mary as the next best thing. And she will mediate between you and Jesus Christ. And you see, the way they got people to believe this was because it it seemed to be a humble sort of thing. You see, I'm such a sinner. I can't go to Jesus Christ, so I'll go to Mary. Sounds humble, sounds good but it's against the word of God. They were worshiping against the word of God. And you can see another example of this if you go back to the, uh, the controversy over icons. 
or images in the worship of the church around the year 1000. Some of you perhaps have studied that in church history. They had the same thing going on. We're going to put images up in our church of Jesus Christ because the common people can't understand the spoken word and so they need pictures to point them to Christ. Again, humble? Okay, it sounds humble, but it's against the word of God. And in our day, we actually have something similar. You look at some of the churches, more of the contemporary churches, and you see that they've added all these elements to the worship of Jesus Christ. Huge bands. You, the list could go on of all the things that have been added. And it sounds good, doesn't it? Because it, it brings in the people off the street. We're trying to lower ourselves so that the people on the street will come in. And yet, oftentimes, they're adding elements to worship that aren't commanded in the word of God. And the fruit of that has not been good. We've, we've lived long enough with this newer kind of worship in North America to know that the fruit has not been good. And the word of God is clear on this. And so we need to be careful also in our own context to maintain the pure worship of the word of God as defined by the word of God. And that brings us to a last aspect of worldly wisdom. And that is that worldly wisdom loves to focus on, it loves to emphasize the commandments of man rather than the commandments of Jesus Christ. It loves to emphasize the rules of man rather than the rules of Christ. Verses 20 through 23. Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and doctrines of men. There's the key phrase. After the commandments and the doctrines of men. Which things, Paul continues, have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. And Paul didn't make this up, did he? He didn't just make this up because he thought it was good. Paul was actually drawing here from what Jesus Christ himself said. You look at Matthew 15, there Jesus says this. He says, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And so if we are here today and we see in ourselves a tendency to take the rules of man, rules which may be good, we have many rules, don't we, in our lives that do not come directly from the word of God. But if we take those rules and we put them over and above Jesus Christ and his specific rules, then we've done what Paul is saying not to do. We're, we're emphasizing the commandments of men over Christ, over the rules of Christ. John Calvin wrote this. He said, when persons, when men, have once taken upon themselves to tyrannize over men's souls, there is no end of new laws being daily added to the old ones and new enactments starting up from time to time. And this can be tempting. We need to admit that. It's tempting to make laws, lots of laws, lots of rules, and to emphasize them over and above the laws of God because we like control. But church history and scripture and many, many, many faithful men of God would tell us that this will, in the end, damage the souls of our people. It will damage the reputation of Jesus Christ. So that's the sixth thing, a tendency to focus upon the commandments of men over Jesus Christ. And because we've gone through these, these six things at some length, let me summarize, you, summarize them for you uh, right now. 
First, worldly wisdom originates in the creative minds of man, not in the revelation of God. Second, it is naturally enticing to us. Third, it is founded on secular principles of reasoning and does nothing for those who latch on to it. Fourth, it loves to focus on the shadows rather than on the substance. Fifth, it has about it a sort of humility, even while proposing things that distract people from Christ. And sixth, it prefers to emphasize the commandments of man over Jesus Christ and his laws. And as we hear this, I hope, I hope we're saying, well, this, this sounds very unappealing to me. This isn't where I want to go in my life. But then maybe you ask, where do I go? We are a people, aren't we, of many problems, many troubles. We have all sorts of situations. Monday morning is going to hit tomorrow, and we're going to have more decisions to make, more problems to face. Where do we go for help in our need for wisdom? Well, it doesn't take much research to understand what Paul would say to us here. Paul says to us here, he says, friends, listen, there's only one answer to your question. And that answer is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself. The wisdom of God, namely Jesus Christ. You see, Paul didn't just warn the the Colossians to stay away from worldly wisdom because he wanted them to go around and cynically critique worldly systems of truth. That's not ultimately why he warned them about worldly wisdom. He warned them about worldly wisdom ultimately to point them to the solution, to Jesus Christ. Sometimes we can do this, can't we? We can become so caught up in focusing on all the bad systems of philosophy in the world, communism, socialism, you name it, but we forget that the reason we're critiquing these things is because we want to be driven away from them and to Jesus Christ. Children, think of it this way. Let's say you're outside on a hot summer day and you are so thirsty. You've been playing outside for hours and all you want is a drink of water. And you go inside and you say, Mom, Dad, I I need to have water. I'm so thirsty. And your parents give you a glass of water or whatever it is and you drink it and you drink another one and another one and finally you feel satisfied. Well, Paul wants the Colossians to do the same thing. He says, it's enough. Don't go to the world. You You will live in heat exhaustion, heat stroke, if you go to the wisdom of the world, you need to come and satiate yourself in the fountain, in the fresh water of Jesus Christ. He's the answer to your needs for wisdom. And he makes this so clear, doesn't he? Just look at a few verses with me in in our chapter. Verse 3, in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ. He's saying, don't go digging around for other treasures in the wisdom of the world. Go to Christ. Verse 10, you are complete in him. You're not complete with the world. You're complete in Christ. Verse 17, the other things are shadows, as we already spoke of, but the body, the substance, the real thing is Jesus Christ. And Paul, as he, as he speaks of Christ in this way, as Christ as wisdom incarnate. He's really referring the Colossians back to the Proverbs. That's what he's doing in this chapter. Now, I think we know the Proverbs pretty well, and we know that picture that Solomon gives at the beginning of Proverbs, where he pictures wisdom as crying out on the street corners, as crying out on the different roads, as crying out on the city walls, saying, come to me, all you who are in need of wisdom, and I will give it to you. Today, we might think, I don't know Kalamazoo well, but we might think of the the places where there's a lot of traffic in downtown Kalamazoo, or the shopping malls, or or places, places that are popular in Kalamazoo. Wisdom standing there, crying out, and saying, come to me. I have wisdom. I have everything that you need to survive in life, to be saved. You know, we walk around downtown or we drive on the freeways and we see all these billboards. 
all calling out for our attention. But Jesus Christ stands also, doesn't he? And he calls out for our attention. And he says, don't listen to the wisdom of the world. Come to me. In Jesus Christ is the fullness of wisdom. And Paul describes this wisdom of Christ in two ways. In verses 1 through 10, he describes Jesus Christ as wisdom in his person. Jesus is wisdom incarnate. And then in verses 11 through 15, he describes Jesus Christ as wisdom in his work. So Jesus Christ is wisdom in his person and work. We already read verse 3, but I'll read it again. In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Speaking of Christ. Verse 9. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So when the disciples, children, when the disciples looked upon Jesus Christ way back in the day they looked at him, they were looking at wisdom incarnate, wisdom in flesh. Can you imagine that? Wisdom itself as a human man. That was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we could say, is the repository of all true wisdom. And that means, doesn't it, that when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that our souls are united by faith. It's a mystical thing. But they're united by faith to the one who is wisdom. We need to get a hold of this. When we believe in Jesus Christ, we are actually united with the one who is wisdom. And that means, doesn't it, that we have access in Christ to all wisdom that we might need. Jesus Christ is wisdom in his person, but then he's also wisdom in his work and what he did. Paul talks about that in verses 11 through 15. He says, when Christ paid for your sins, your sins were paid for. You were in him and he paid for your sins. When he was buried in his death, you were in him, buried in his death. When Christ was raised from the dead, you were with him, in him, raised from the dead. When he was seated at the right hand of God, you are seated with him by faith, united to his person. Everything Christ did in his saving work was the wisdom of God. So Christ is wisdom in his person. He's wisdom in his work. And so Paul says to the Colossians, he says in verse 10, you are complete in him. There's nothing else that you need in this life than Jesus Christ. He is wisdom in his person, wisdom in his work. And if this is the case, as we think about our lives here today, then what John Calvin said here is very appropriate for us to consider. He who is not contented with Christ alone, Calvin says, desires something better and more excellent than God. He who is not contented with Christ alone desires something better and more excellent than God. Can you imagine? Would you dare to say that to someone else? I desire something more than Christ, more than God? I don't think so. And yet, think about our lives. I think it's true that sometimes we become discontented with Christ, practically speaking. Just think about when big decisions come up in your life. Is Jesus Christ the one you go to in prayer? Going down on your knees and saying, Lord, we need the wisdom of Christ in this decision. Or maybe when you are in a time of hardship, do you go to Christ's word? Do you go to Christ's word and seek for wisdom there? Seek for help there? Or what about the Sabbath day? Do you long for the Sabbath day because you know that the Sabbath day is where you can get all the wisdom in Jesus Christ for the rest of your week? Or what about when you're struggling with guilt? We all struggle with guilt sometimes, don't we? Maybe more often than not. Where do we go with our guilt? Where do we go with our sin? Do we go immediately to the fountain that is designed to wash away our sins? Do we immediately say, Lord, I'm guilty but in you is salvation and a rest there. Do we do that? Maybe I speak only for myself, but oftentimes we are slow to be satisfied, to be content in Christ and Christ only. And yet the wonderful thing is this, isn't it? That even in those times 
when we are discontented with Christ and his work, God doesn't look at us and say, enough, I've had enough. He doesn't discard backsliding sinners. He draws them back to himself, doesn't he? You think about it, all the way from the first gospel call in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were running, trying to hide themselves and all their shame and all their sin. What does God do? Does he say, enough with you? You're done. I gave you everything. And you took the one thing I said not to take. Does he do that? No. He says, where are you? Adam, Eve. He goes searching after them in the gospel. This is the nature of our God. Think about Peter, backsliding Peter, proud Peter. We're so often like him, aren't we? Lord, I will never leave you. I will be with you to the end. And Jesus says, oh, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me. And Peter did. Peter did. And yet what did the Lord do? He went to Peter and he reconciled with Peter. He made things well again. He pulled Peter back from that place of despair. And he said, Peter, do you love me? And Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. I'm a backsliding sinner, but you know that I love you. And so Jesus says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. He restores Peter. And he restores us also here today. He does not leave us in our discontentedness with Christ to ourselves. He draws us back to Jesus Christ. He rebukes those he loves. He disciplines them. Sometimes it's painful, isn't it? But the Lord always brings his people back to himself. And this should fill our hearts wherever we are today, if we know Jesus Christ, with a great joy. Because we have a God who is faithful. A God who takes care of us in all of our sins. John Bunyan put, put it so beautifully in one of his sermons. He said, to see a prince entreat a beggar to receive alms would be a strange sight. You think about that image, a prince or the president walking down Division Street or wherever your street is here where the homeless people live and stepping out of his car and giving alms to these beggars. What a sight. But Bunyan says, how much more amazing, how much more amazing that Christ stands before us as sinners entreating us to turn to him. Bunyan says this, he says, to see God entreat a sinner, to hear Christ say, I stand at the door and knock with a heart full and a heaven full of grace to bestow upon him that opens this is such a sight as dazzles the eyes of angels. And so can we ask ourselves today, are our eyes dazzled by the grace of God in his wisdom, in his person, in his work, in his refusing to let backsliding sinners go? Are your eyes dazzled by his grace? David was a great backslider, wasn't he? And yet what does he write? His eyes were dazzled by Jesus Christ. He says in Psalm 63, O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Because thy loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise thee. My soul follows hard after thee. Thy right hand upholds me. And this was Paul's heart also, wasn't he? As he looked upon Jesus Christ, the one who he had persecuted, he looks upon Jesus Christ and he says, this is the one, this is the one that I love. This is the one that you Colossians should love. You are complete in him. He has everything that you need. As we think about our lives also here today, perhaps you're an elderly person and you're struggling with loneliness or sickness or maybe the passing of friends or siblings and you struggle. And yet Jesus Christ says, I have everything 
that, I, that you need. I have everything that you need. I am the good shepherd, even in this time. I will give you the wisdom that you need. Or maybe we're a father and a mother and we're struggling with the challenges of parenting. We all know the challenges if we have children. But Paul would say to you, you are complete in Jesus Christ. Open that word of Christ. Search it. There's sufficient wisdom in there for you. Or maybe you're a young person here today and you, you're struggling with peer pressure or maybe with, with temptation of various kinds, maybe with depression. Christ is enough for you too. You see, Christ's work of paying for our sins can remove all of our guilt. His wisdom can be applied to our hearts so that we know what to do in our lives. We don't have to be anxious. We don't have to be concerned. Jesus Christ is sufficient. We don't need to let our emotions rule our hearts. Go to Jesus Christ. He will provide what you need. And so as we move now to the battle plan, and I'll be more brief here, as we move to the battle plan that Paul gives we shouldn't be surprised that Paul's battle plan starts with Jesus Christ. It starts with Jesus Christ. How are we to defeat, to defeat worldly wisdom? We are to go to Jesus Christ. Paul says it in verse 6. He says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. You see, Paul looked at these soldiers, if you will, in his training camp. And he knew that if he was to start giving them tactics for fighting against worldly wisdom, but they weren't yet soldiers of Jesus Christ, then it would fail. They had to first be united with Jesus Christ. They first had to become soldiers of Jesus Christ before he could give them any other tactics in fighting against worldly wisdom. Before he could give them any other ways of defeating sin in their life, they had to first come to Jesus Christ. And I think this brings us to a very practical application. If we're here today and we love to argue about the truth, about the truth, maybe we love to defeat evolution or maybe we love to talk about the the wrong political systems in our country or you name it, whatever the thing is that you love to argue about, but maybe you love to argue about it but you haven't actually come to the one who is the truth, the one who is the way, the one who is the life. Well, you need to get your priorities straight, don't you? You cannot argue for true systems of thought but not come to the one who is the truth. That is the foundation. You must come to Christ first. You see, if you come, if you spend your whole life fighting against systems of truth that are false, yes, but if you spend your whole life doing that, you will one day arrive at the judgment seat of Christ and he will say to you, what were you doing? You, you argued your whole life against these false systems, but you wouldn't come to me that you might have life. What a thought. But there will be people in heaven, at the, rather, at the judgment seat, who are like that. The, the scribes and the Pharisees did this par excellence. They would search their scriptures. They would argue over the truth day in and day out. They were so good at arguing. But when they came to Jesus Christ, they looked at him and they said, nope, he's not for us. And God will judge them and he will judge us if we do not come to Jesus Christ as he is offered to us in the gospel. So we must confess our sins. We must humble ourselves. We must stand by faith upon Jesus Christ. And then, we can begin to fight the battle against worldly wisdom in a real way, in a way that is truly useful for the kingdom of God. And this leads us into the second, the last part of Paul's battle plan against worldly wisdom. And I'm speaking here particularly about the foundational elements of this battle plan. We see that again in verse six and seven. Paul says, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. So walk in Jesus Christ, live out your life in Jesus Christ, 
in the same way that you received him. And how do we receive Jesus Christ? Children, you know this answer, don't you? How do we receive Jesus Christ as offered in the gospel? We do it by faith. We do it by faith and by faith alone. That was what Paul said to the Colossians. The whole scripture testifies to this truth. We receive Christ by faith. But Paul is saying, in the same way that you received him, so walk in him. You received him by faith, walk in him by faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Often we look at our life of sanctification and we, we think about it in this way. We say, well, we are saved by faith and faith alone. But when it comes to killing sin, well, we think it's just a lot of hard work with maybe a little bit of faith mixed in there. But that is not the way Scripture presents sanctification Sanctification, fighting against worldly wisdom, does require a lot of hard work. We know that. It requires a lot of sweat, blood, tears. We have to kill sin, we have to put it to death, mortify it, as Paul goes on to speak about. But the foundation of sanctification, the foundation of defeating worldly wisdom, lies in the exercise of faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the foundation of our battle against sin. And this means, doesn't it, that the first battleground that you face when you're dealing with sin, as we all do, is not that moment of immediate temptation to become angry or to lust or to steal or to lie or whatever it may be. That's not the first battleground. The first battleground is whether or not we believe the promises of God. Day by day, week by week. Think about Adam and Eve again. There they were in the garden. What was the first battleground they faced? Was it when Eve's eyes saw that fruit and said, it looks good and I'm going to take it? That wasn't the first battleground. The first battleground was whether or not they believed the promises of God over the lies of the devil. That was the first battleground. And that's the first battleground in our life here also. Do we believe the promises of God? That will be the fuel by which we defeat worldly wisdom. Paul says that without faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You see that. It's impossible. If you are fighting the fight against sin on your own strength, without resting upon the promises of God, you will fail. And if you succeed, whose righteousness will it be then? It will be yours, right? And yet the Bible tells us that our righteousness is all as filthy rags. So the battle of sanctification, the battle against worldly wisdom begins and is founded upon faith, the exercise of faith in the promises of God. Let me put it to you another way. You think of Ephesians chapter 6. Paul there talks about the armor of God, doesn't he? What does he say? He says, above all these things, take the shield of faith by which you can quench the fiery darts of the devil. You see, if our shield of faith is hanging down upon the ground, we will be pierced through with many temptations. That's the scriptural image. But if the shield of faith is up and in position, we will block those fiery darts of the devil. And so the battleground begins in faith. And so if you say here today, well, how can I grow in holiness? The word of God responds to you, the first thing, not the only thing, the first thing is to exercise trust in Jesus Christ. Some ministers have in the past compared the fight against sin to a workout routine. And if you want to think in those terms, we could say that the first machine, the first exercise that you go to, 
must be the machine of the promises of God, which you exercise by faith. Faith in the promises of God. Well, now maybe you say, well, that's all very well. But what does this look like in my life daily, weekly, practically? Well, let me give you two two ways in which you can put this into, into work in your life practically. First, it means that you need to start your days by daily filling your mind with the promises of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Fill your mind with the promises of God. Secondly, it means taking those promises and moving them from your head to your heart by praying over them, by meditating upon them, and by, by putting your signature to them, by saying, yes, Lord, I believe this. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. David said it in the Psalms. He said, Lord, open thou mine eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. So taking it from your mind to your heart by prayer, by meditation, by actively trusting the word of God. And yes, none of these things are possible without the Holy Spirit. We know that. And yet the Spirit specifically calls us to use the means that are given to us. And he promises to bless those means. Now if we reverse this order, if we begin the fight against sin by doing it in our own strength, by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, by by cutting off sin, trying to cut off sin without Christ, we will become self-righteous, just like the Pharisees. We will fail ultimately. But when we have faith as the foundation, when we have Christ as the foundation, then we will succeed in our fight against sin. And maybe you say, well, that's, that's helpful, but I'm in a place today of backsliding. I'm in a place of sin. I feel far from God. I don't even know where to begin. What do I do? Do I have to to do a whole bunch of things before I come to Jesus Christ? No. You must turn around. You must repent. And the first act of repentance is believing the promises of God. Believing in Jesus Christ. So take to yourself the promises of God, even in a place of backsliding. Take them and say, Lord, bring these home to my heart. Take our our Heidelberg Catechism question and answer one. Take the promises there and make them your own. Say, what what is my only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, that I with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation, and therefore by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life, and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. Rest in that. Rest in the promises of God. Revive yourselves in the promises of God. And don't just do that. Rejoice in the promises of God. Revel in them. Exalt in them. Make them your own. Don't let the devil and sin and the world pull you away from Jesus Christ. If you read the the book of Hebrews, the main concern of Paul in the book of Hebrews is actually this point. Is that that the Hebrews would go to Christ. That they would stay with Christ and that they would never be moved away from Christ. And actually, as you read Paul's writings, this is, this is a large part of his focus. Don't be moved from Jesus Christ. Even in your backsliding, go back to him and stick to him. He will save you. To use another example, we need to not be like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. You remember that story, children? When he was found in, in the dungeon of giant despair, and he's lying there with his companion, and he is beside himself. He even considers death. And then what does he remember? He remembers that he has the key of promise in his pocket. And he says, how could I have forgotten it? 
And he takes it and he opens the door of the dungeon and out they go, back to the highway towards the celestial, celestial city. And this is precisely what we have to do. We need to lay a hold of the promises of God by faith. Open that dungeon door of guilt and despair. Be done with it and be on our way to the celestial city through Jesus Christ. And so as I said before, if you're here today and you're trying to kill sin on your own strength without actively trusting the promises of Jesus Christ day in and day out, it will become something of yourself. It will become works righteousness and that righteousness will be dirty rags before Jesus Christ. But when you make your fight the good fight of faith, as Paul terms it, the good fight of faith, then you can say with Paul these words in Galatians 2. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, when we live the life of faith, and it's not our righteousness that we have, it's Christ's righteousness. Christ's righteousness, yes, in our justification, but Christ's righteousness also in our sanctification. And so as Paul moves through the rest of Colossians 2 and then also into Colossians 3, and he gives these fundamental principles of of also mortifying the old man, putting off the old man, putting on the new man, they all rest. They all rest upon this foundation of faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who started the good work in you and he is the one who will complete it, the Bible says, until the day that he returns. Faithful, says Jude, is he who called you, who also will do it. And so as I end the sermon this morning, I want to end by pointing those of you here this morning who don't know anything of this wisdom of Jesus Christ. And I want to do that through an illustration that Spurgeon gave in one of his sermons. He said this, it's a longer illustration, but I trust you will find it useful. He said, suppose that a man has heard of a great physician who understands his complaint. He has traveled a great many miles to see this celebrated doctor. But when he gets to the door, they tell him that he is out. Well, says he, then I must wait till he is in. You need not wait, they reply. His assistant is at home. The suffering man, who has often been disappointed, answers, I do not care about his assistant. I want to see the man himself. Mine is a desperate case. But I have heard that this physician has cured the like. I must therefore see him. Well, say they, he is out, but there are his books. You can see his books. Thank you, he says. I cannot be content with his books. I want the living man and nothing else. It is to him that I must speak, and from him I will receive instructions. Do you see that cabinet? Yes, it is full of his medicines. The sick man answers, I dare say they are very good, but they are of no use to me without the doctor. I want their owner to prescribe for me or I shall die of my disease. But see, cries one, here is a person who has been cured by him, a man of great experience who has been present at many remarkable operations. Go into the inquiry room with him and he will tell you all about the mode of cure. The afflicted man answers, I am much obliged to you. But all your talk only makes me long the more to see the doctor. I came to see him. And I'm not going to be put off with anything else. I must see the man himself for myself. He has made my disease a specialty. He knows how to handle my case. And I will stop at nothing till I see him. And then Spurgeon goes on to say this. He says, if you are seeking Christ... Imitate the sick man. Never be put off with books or conversations. Be not content with Christian people talking to you or preachers preaching to you 
or the Bible being read to you or prayers being offered for you. Anything short of Jesus will leave you short of salvation. And you have to reach Christ and touch Christ. And nothing short of this will serve your turn. And so can I ask you here this morning, have you done this? Have you come to Jesus Christ in all his wisdom, in his person and his work? And have you touched him, reached out and touched him by faith and being cured of your disease? If you haven't done this, you cannot even begin to hope to fight the battle against worldly wisdom. But when you do this, then you can proceed on and you will proceed on through the strength of Christ all the way to glory. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank Thee for the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that there would have been something helpful in this sermon for each one of us here, that we would stay far away from worldly wisdom and that our battle plan would rest in Jesus Christ. That we would go nowhere until we have trusted in Jesus Christ for the first time and again and again and again. Forgive us of our sins, Lord, in speaking and in listening. Go with us in this afternoon hour and do be with the man who brings thy word also tonight. Do bring a rich measure of thy spirit upon him. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.